Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski make predictions for 2022 and some New Year's resolutions. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamalski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. I'm calling in from LA and I'm with Rob Bates, news director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy, well, almost Happy New Year. We're, we're yeah, it's not, it's not actually New Year. It's getting there, though. I'm writing emails saying, hope this year is ending on a good note and all the best for 22. So it's pretty exciting. I love the ring of 22. Actually, in all honesty, is my favorite number. So really, it's my birthday. So there you go, 22. Well, so it's a good number. I think it bodes well. In numerology, not that I need to go on and on about this, but it is a, a master number, like a real master, master, master number. Don't ask me to explain what that is, but there is something about the symmetry of that number and the, the 11 times 2. 11 is another master number. Anyway. I had no idea it's such a cool birthday. Me, me and Joan Jett. Me, Joan Jett, and uh, and Frodo and Bilbo Baggins were also born. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, neat. Yeah, there you go. So we're here talking about 22 and we're thinking about, we already did our recap of 21, which was another complicated year. I don't expect anything less from 22, but I am optimistic. I'm optimistic for, for a number of reasons and we can talk about some of those, but there's tons to think about what might come to pass in 22. I mean, forecasting in this is this very you know awkward thing where a lot of people can say all kinds of things about what they think will happen and whether or not they actually get called out on those, on whether their predictions were right is is another thing entirely. There was a great podcast recently, Ezra Klein, who does a wonderful, wonderful show for the New York Times. He had a woman interview a psychologist who specializes in forecasting or basically has written about super forecasters and what it takes to be somebody who is a super forecaster, somebody whose predictions are right more often than they're wrong or more often than chance. And it turns out even experts often fail that chance test. I mean, a dart-throwing chimpanzee apparently has about the same chance as some experts of getting a prediction right. And so so we we embark on this episode with a little trepidation about what we're going to say and whether or not we might have more accuracy, I should say, than a chimpanzee throwing darts. But I think we're, we're less making hardcore statistical predictions than we are just talking about the things that we know are going to kind of be issues of points of discussion in the new year, right? Rob, we're not sitting here throwing percentages at what we think will happen. No, I absolutely think everything I say will happen. I'm just <laughs> unquestionably. Rob is the yes, oracle. Exactly. I mean, look, anytime you talk about the future, you're really talking about the present and the past. So we're basically looking at the trends and seeing what will accelerate. I mean, obviously, if you were in 2020, you would never dreamed of what would happen. And, and I think the same for 2021. So it's just looking basically at some of the big trends in the industry and what people see as the forces ahead. Head and we spoke to that futurist last month and he had some very interesting things to say. Obviously, it's an interesting time. I never dreamed I would not be in my office at all for 2021. I haven't been to the JCK office since March 2020, but I'm very hopeful I'll be back in 2022. I am too. I feel pretty good about it, uh, at least a hybrid form of office. 
maybe we talk about what's imminently in our future, which is the holiday. We're a couple weeks out from Christmas and all signs suggest that this will be a blockbuster holiday like no other. I mean, Rob, what are you seeing out there? What are some of the signals you're getting about what jewelers can expect? I, I think it's a strong holiday. I mean, I'm not hearing any complaints. And certainly if you check out the trajectory of the year, it's been a very strong year. First of all, I think we probably will see in over the next year, a wedding boom. I mean, that's what everybody says because people put off their weddings and, you know, all these people living together will probably want to get married at some point. So that should be good for the business. I, I mean, I think it's kind of conventional wisdom that the industry has done extremely well because there was less money going to things like travel. And the question is, assuming that COVID uh, dies down, which we certainly all hope, will the gains that the industry made continue? And, I, and that's something I don't know. I think one force pushing back and sort of suggesting that the industry will continue to perform well is this growing sense of people storing their cash in hard assets, whether those are very fancy pre-owned watches or diamonds or other kinds of collectibles. And so maybe that bodes well for very high-end jewelry and very high-end watches. Not so sure what it means about your average fashion jewel or your average kind of purchase, but at least at the very high end, I think that we may expect to see a continued strength and good performances overall for brands that feel like they retain their value, may even have secondary market value, certainly heirloom value. Maybe the market continues to bifurcate in that way that we've seen where the mass market maybe doesn't perform all that well or maybe suffers and the high end just goes bonkers. I mean, they just got this big infrastructure bill passed, so that should definitely help the economy. It should hopefully help them and the people in the middle class and the lower class. And I know this uh, Build Back Better bill is designed to help middle class families and lower class families. Because otherwise, yes, I believe we will still continue to see this bifurcation. And it's, you know, it really is galling when you hear that during this whole pandemic, the top 1% got way richer than they've been. And they were already ridiculously rich. I think over the next year, we'll see if we continue to see this kind of economic inequality continue to grow or we do things to rejuvenate the middle class in this country because I think in the end you can't really prosper as a country without a middle class you can't just have a lot of very rich people and a lot of struggling uh, poor people you have to have something a little bit in the middle especially for things like jewelry and mass market and engagement rings yeah I'm equally galled and very hopeful that somehow we can have a fairer and more just society. But in terms of this hybrid approach to retail, we know that shoppers have become accustomed to things like buy online, pick up in store. We know that some people deeply miss the retail experience. Um, Andrea Hill, who I recently interviewed, she's one of the smartest people in this industry. She is you know, founder of Hill Management Group, Strategy Works, advises all kinds of mid-sized companies in this business. And she talked about how retail is really Really poised to reinvent itself. She talked about how we miss shopping during the pandemic and no one misses shopping on Amazon and how true that is. So I do think brick and mortar stores are you know, in a good spot, but they do have to think about ways to integrate digital access and thread it throughout their physical offerings, whether that's setting up a little in-store studio where they can do even live streaming you know, shows from the store with their associates, chipping in and showing off whatever they have and allowing people to dip in from whatever channel they 
please, whether that's coming in in store, buying through their Instagram live or sort of traditional e-commerce. So I think the retailers that are really poised for success are those that have figured out how to thread those different channels together. I mean, omni-channel is the, the standard word. So if you figured out how to really master that in a way that feels fluid and frictionless so that every single channel is just another way of shopping your store, you don't even really think about it as a different channel. You just think about it as you know whatever way is more convenient for you as a shopper that day. So I think that that's coming. And I wonder if the same will apply in the end to things like trade shows like JC. Las Vegas, where we did see an all digital show in the summer of 2020 due to the pandemic. We saw a return to a physical show, which went very well in 2021. And maybe come May or June, there'll be a little bit more of a hybrid offer for people who are still not that comfortable traveling. I think for trade shows, I think, I mean, I can't speak for every show, but uh, I think jewelry is very difficult to do as a virtual trade show. It's not impossible, but I think it's it's just not the same. I think being in person adds a different dimension to it, especially since it's such a personal industry and it's a object that people like to see and look and browse and things like that. But I agree that things like it used to be that if you didn't attend JCK, you couldn't see any of the presentations, you know, that you had to be there right now you can dial into the presentations and that will probably be going forward. You don't necessarily have to attend an event to actually see the event or to even participate in the event. So yeah, I think hybrid for a lot of things is going to happen. And uh, when I did my focus group last year with consumers, a lot of people were very excited about this idea of being able to talk to your jeweler from your couch. If you have a couple quick questions, you know, to use the chat and to use the video chat and to do, do all these things that, you know, a lot of them came about because of COVID, but I really think a lot of them are going to survive COVID because they're genuinely useful tools. If these tools exist, you shouldn't have to go to the jeweler every time you have a question or every every time you have you want to see something. Yeah, I think exactly. A lot of jewelers turned to like Zoom consultations when they were initially talking to a couple about their engagement rings. I mean, why why wouldn't you at least have your initial conversation over Zoom and then invite the couple in once you've been able to cull uh, an appropriate grouping of rings they might like, you know, you, you want to make that time in store focused, you want to make it as brief and as short and sweet as possible, given people's sensitivities to crowded spaces. And why not start that consultation on zoom where or whatever channel you whatever platform you like, just to make things easy for everybody. Honestly, convenience is, is super important, but it does not in any way lessen people's interest in experiencing jewelry in person. And this actually ties in with uh, hybrid auctions are, have become very big that so many of the big auction sales, including the one that just happened with this Patek Philippe Tiffany watch are occurring online. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess for as long as auctions have been around, sure, there's the auction room and the sale room, and it's a very exciting experience. I was there at the Elizabeth Taylor sale that Christie's held, gosh, I think it was 2011, about a decade ago. And it's thrilling to be there in person, but, you know, historically, they've always had a phone bidding option. And so this online option is really just the 21st century version of that. And yes, I mean, apparently the Tiffany Blue Patek Philippe, the one out of 170 pieces that Patek Philippe made made that Tiffany consigned to Phillips for its New York watch auction that took place this past weekend, December 11th and 12th, is sold for 
$5 million. I think that surprised everybody. It retails for 56000 Just under that, I believe. Yes, the retail yes. is in the 50s and it went for $6.5 million. That's, of course, with the auction house's premium. But somebody paid that. Somebody paid that. And of course, all the profits, apparently everything, not just the camera price, goes to the Nature Conservancy. So that's a, a huge windfall for a very important organization. Really great, great, great news. It's a polarized market in terms of who thinks that Tiffany Blue is you know, the right thing for the marketplace or if that was a good decision by Patek Philippe. But you cannot deny that $6.5 for an important charitable organization is just fantastic. What it says about the larger market and what people are willing to pay for watches, I think is fascinating. I think in terms of what we can expect in 22, there's been this ongoing conversation among luxury watch lovers and buyers and collectors about whether or not we're in the midst of a bubble. And the prices that you see pieces from Patek Philippe and Audemars and Rolex and Richard Mille and F.P. Jean and these really A-list makers, what they're fetching on the secondary market compared to their retail value. And so some people are in the camp where they think it is a bubble and others are in the camp where they think that this is an evolving, fairly young marketplace has a lot of room to grow. People don't talk about ceilings in the fine art world. People are quite comfortable with the millions that are achieved on a regular basis for works of art. So why not watches? Why don't mechanical works of art have the same sort of room to grow? I'm not exactly squarely in one camp or the other, but I don't think it's a bubble. I mean, there may be a correction of some form, but I do think that in 22, we'll continue to see secondary market prices for some of the finest pieces, or at least the pieces that the market has collectively decided it's going to value, like a stainless steel wristwatch that in terms of its breakdown value has very little, but in terms of the cachet that people associate with it, it's, you know, like this Tiffany Blue. It's a stainless steel watch. It has a Tiffany Blue dial and a Tiffany and signature at six o'clock and below the Patek Philippe signature at, at 12 o'clock and people have decided that holy hell that is worth millions yeah and that and that particular watch had a lot going for it you know it, I can't say if anything's a bubble or not I think at some point you do reach a ceiling. It just depends if they can still create interesting spins on their typical product to keep people interested. People are definitely interested. There's a lot of kind of hate online, but I think that's typical for online. You know, I mean, I think you get a lot more traction for your nasty comments than you do for being just a positive person in general. And the haters online can hate all day. But yes, if they were given the opportunity to buy one, there's no doubt. Of course, they'd be the opportunist flipping it the minute they could. So that's why they're not allowed to buy it. Is, is there anything that you know that they're doing to stop flipping in that way? You know, I asked Thierry Stern when I spoke to him in mid-November about this piece, and I did have a very privileged interview with him. He doesn't give them out very freely. And he was very clear that he would be very upset about if one of these pieces ends up on the secondary market, you know, sooner than later, but he has no way of really stopping it. He thinks that Tiffany is apparently in charge of allocation and figuring out which of its clients will be able to, you know, be given the opportunity to purchase it. I think he fully expects that at least one will end up on the secondary market, but when I spoke to another Patek Philippe expert, John Reardon, former Christie's watch executive, runs his own sales platform now called Collectability that focuses on vintage and pre-owned Patek Philippe's. And he was very clear that you know there was magic around a Tiffany signature on a wristwatch and a Patek Philippe wristwatch and that collectors who are able to get their hands on a Tiffany signed dial are so protective of it that those pieces will stay in their families because those are their legacies to their children. So not to spend too much time talking about Tiffany, which we spoke 
spoke about in our previous episode, but clearly there's stuff going on there. They've got a lot of newsmaking ventures and a lot of experimental collaborations and all kinds of stuff to revitalize this heritage house. Ending the year on this note is pretty cool. So what other cool tech stuff is brewing? Well, let me tell you, I've got kind of a funny thing that hopefully will send some people to their browsers. So last week I had lunch with a guy named Miles Fisher. Miles Fisher is, I want to say he's 37 or 38, lives in Los Angeles. He runs a coffee company called Bixby Coffee that you can buy online and they roast it the same day. The whole point of difference is that you get fresh roasted beans immediately delivered to your doorstep. What's fascinating about him is, I guess since he was about 16, almost every day of his life, someone would come up to him and say, did anybody ever tell you you look a lot like Tom Cruise? He is Tom Cruise's doppelganger. I'm telling you everything about him. Tom Cruise, but you know, Tom Cruise that's younger. What he's done is he's taken his incredible likeness to Tom Cruise and his ability to channel Tom Cruise and turned it into a deep fake account. And if you go to TikTok, deep fake Tom Cruise, just search that, you will be stunned by what this kind of technology can do. Anyway, the whole point is he actually is a real watch geek. He loves watches and he started to collect them. And so he recently came back from Dubai Watch Week and we were talking as a guest of Automotive Piguet no less. And I think that the kind of AI that is involved with these videos is, you know, it's already in use in the jewelry industry, not the same kind of AI, but just our AI in general, artificial intelligence and all the ways that you can program a computer and some sort of algorithm to create. I think we're just on the brink of seeing people talk about that in a way that is full of pride and full of interest and not in the way that a lot of people tend to think about computer generated design or computer aided design. You know, there's a sort of a sniff of, you know, it lacks soul. It's not the real thing. It's just a computer. I wouldn't, you know, as a designer, you want to emphasize your hand skills. But I do think we're sort of on the brink of acknowledging that technology is absolutely critical to the way that people create, design, manufacture jewelry, and maybe even allowing that technology to have a starring role. I also think in the way that we sell jewelry, clearly technology has played a huge role, everything from social media and the way we're now all digitally, you know, primed to buy or at least to be enticed through digital channels. But I do think that things like virtual reality and augmented reality are again going to take a big leap in the next year or two. That brush with augmented reality, we saw it during the pandemic where, for example, jewelry brands would create filters on Instagram where you could take a selfie and the filter allowed you to place a pair of earrings on your ear and see what that looks like. So, you know, there was some kind of gimmicky value to that and it's kind of fun and you can send that picture around to your friends and say, check out my new earrings. I think that we're going to see more and more of that. We're going to see it more on rings because the technology wasn't as refined. Putting it on your hand was a little more awkward, but I think that's changing. So we'll see more and more types of jewelry that you can virtually try on and it's becoming, you know, just more sophisticated. So it just doesn't look clunky or awkward. It looks, dare I say, real. You know, this question of deep fakes and AI and augmented reality. I mean, I think these are going to be big questions for ethicists of the future, but certainly in in the retail space, they're going to make selling from afar much more fun. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the Jetsons. Do you remember the Jetsons? I sure do. Where they put the uh, the fake face on with the video phone. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's uh, that's like what we're living through. 
I think the possible danger of some of these things is that they just become tech gimmicks and tech for the sake of tech. And I think for it to be truly adopted uh, by retailers or by consumers, it has to be genuinely useful. But I can certainly see seeing how you look with expensive earrings and things like that. I, I can certainly see that being useful. Yeah, you know, it is certainly enliven that experience of either buying online or buying in a live stream. I mean, I think it just goes hand in hand with the way we all live now. If we want to segue into this conversation around where our industry is headed in terms of sustainability, I think more and more about what it means to be a consumer in the circular economy and what that means in general. But I do think jewelry is really poised for an interest. I mean, it has all the elements of a circular economy in terms of, you know, nobody throws gold away, nobody throws diamonds away. And so what does it mean to design in a way where the jewelry you design is easy enough to break down and be reused? What does it mean to establish a really healthy pre-owned market like exists in watches, but perhaps formalize it better for the jewelry industry so that there is not a need to keep mining virgin gold and virgin steel and virgin platinum, but to reuse what exists in above ground stocks. The conversations around circularity will certainly ramp up as more and more consumers become conscious of that and become conscious of waste and what it means to just add things to the trash pile. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of tech, I just wanted to get this in that what we're seeing is some of the big lab grown diamond companies starting to pivot to tech applications for their diamonds. And there's a lot of talk about using diamonds possibly for semiconductors, which some doubt, but that's uh, certainly in the air and using them for electronic applications. So we've all been thinking about them as jewelry products, but they have a lot of uses and there's a lot of things you can do with them. And I think we're going to see, even for jewelry, I think we're going to see the colored lab-grown diamond market is doing extremely well. So I, I think that's something we're, we're also going to see over the next year. I guess it, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in general with lab grown in 22 and beyond, but no doubt it's a huge part of the market now, or at least a very huge growing part of the market. I had a fascinating visit earlier this fall to Lightbox lab grown facility in outside of Portland, and it was really, really interesting. And you can see why that would lend itself to tech applications, of course. I mean, in fact, the people who built the factory were all like semiconductor experts, people who built factories that build semiconductors. So um, yeah, I don't really know what a semiconductor conductor is do you well no but i know that <laughs> i know they're very important sort of a conductor it's a semi conductor it's, yeah it's know. half a conductor <laughs> it's kind of, maybe it's a conductor i don't know anyway we're, we're sort of running out of time here but i wonder it's new year's so do you, almost new year's do you have any personal resolutions you want to share yeah i mean i was thinking you know just for me as a jck writer i want to talk a little bit more to people i disagree with because i think right now i talk to a lot of ngos and i talk to a lot of people who are, are very sympathetic to NGOs, people in the big companies like Signet and Pandora and, and all these companies that are very much on the sustainability train, but a lot of our industry is not on that train. And there's a lot of different things going on and a lot of people who aren't necessarily heard from. So I'm going to try to expand the people I reach out to and the people I hear from. And I'm also going to do less surveys <laughs> because I, I think I run a lot of market research that is sponsored and, and done to prove a particular point from a particular point of view. And I don't think that's, I, I, I'm starting to not trust that stuff as, as much as I used to. 
I think that's great. I think both of those are really good sort of ways to orient yourself in the new year. And yeah, I think talking to people you disagree with, I think we all should probably do that on the whole in our lives in general to not be siloed. I'd like to, of course, see see people more. I think it's time. I've started to over the last six months, but I am really looking forward to seeing friends and colleagues and just people I've, I've known for all these years in Tucson for the gem shows in February. I'm looking forward to going to Watches and Wonders at the end of March and early April in Geneva to reconnect with all the watch people I know. And I'm extra, extra looking forward to JCK Las Vegas in early June 22. Yes, me too. I'm looking forward to all those things. I, I think I'm going to try to learn what a semiconductor is in, in 2022. And um, also, I should note on a, on a personal self-promotional note that my second book is coming out in February called Murder is Not a Girl's Best Friend, my second novel. It's a continuation of the, the first with the same characters. It deals with a lot of the social issues the industry deals with. But it tries to be fun, and I hope it is fun, and I hope everybody listening, you know, we've talked a lot about mindless consumption, but this is a good thing to mindlessly consume. This is thoughtful consumption. Your first book yes. was so fun. I read it in, you know, a day or two, and it was a great read and a really great insight into some of the more esoteric aspects of this trade, and I really can't wait for book number two, so February. So it's all done. It's just now in making its way through the published pipeline. It's good to go, and I'm trying to write the third one even today so uh hope uh, you'll all uh, be there in february and i hope to see all of you in person a lot more because I've, I've missed a lot of people and i really do want to see people face to face yeah well i'll see you because i'm coming into new york in mid-gen for the gem awards and 24 karat and just the fact that those are happening is cause for celebration so i can't wait to see you everyone who's listening have a wonderful holiday a wonderful start to 22 and may we turn the turn the page onto a bright optimistic prosperous healthy new year happy new year 22 cool <laughs> number thanks for listening to the jewelry district i'm natalie comet the producer of the podcast if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.